you you got up to got up. coach or no just got up to to live my life Zach and then fell back asleep I did it was an act it was on accident if that's any consolation but, well no how how did how do you fall back asleep by accident well I feel like most people most people have like most people one, choose to fall asleep Al, yeah, I guess I guess yeah most people have like one unbelievable skill like it's something that they're really really good at I am like the Vikings of sleeping. It's like any time I could just fall asleep. Um, now, there's probably like a scientific diagnostic for that, but I just like to think that I'm a really good sleeper. Okay. Yeah. Is it a skill if you can't control it? <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know, but it's got me out of some binds. I'll tell you that much. A couple of tough conversations, just <laughs> quick power nap mid-convo and <laughs> good to go. Oh, I don't know where to start, Al. Yeah. Welcome to the Gray Zone. I am Zach Oline. And I'm, I'm also Zach Oline. I'm Al. Yes, and you're also late to the recording, but you know. Hey. What's your name? I'm Al. Al Miller. Perfect. Al Miller, and, sorry. Yeah, well, let's be formal. Um, and uh, I thought, I don't know if you know this, I thought we we could start with um, a discussion of the name because you proposed a bunch of names. And I picked one and said, let's go for it. And I'm not sure I ever told you why I settled on the gray zone. Did I? Uh, I don't think you told me specifically, but I've got a, hopefully I've got a good sense of why you chose it, but I'd love to hear your rationale. Okay. Well, I'll start and then we'll, we'll, we'll see if uh, you're on the same page, but I, I only, I only say, because I think it leads into an interesting discussion for coaches, which is like, you know, it, it echoes a sort of life philosophy I have, which is that so few things are black and white right? I think almost everything is gray. And I think the really interesting discussions, uh, you know, involve the nuance, the nuance of what's in that gray zone. Um, because I think it's very easy to say, you know, you should always do this, or you should never do this, or, you know, this sort of thing is always like this or never like that. And I think the, when we get into the gray zone, that's when we can really have productive conversations, whether it's about coaching or it's about life. Um, and I think like, uh, just to give an example, like I think there's, you know, I'm so tired of the phrase and I'm sure I've used it and, and I can calling myself out here, but I'm so tired of the phrase, uh, you know, like studies have shown because right. I'm like a 100%. I think it's so important that we base our coaching practices on the evidence and there's different types of evidence, but for sure, scientific uh, studies and are one of the best forms of evidence. Um, but I'm, I'm so tired of that phrase in coaching and in life because it inevitably or very often uh, it is stated and there's absolutely no context given and you have no clue when the study was done, who was doing it, who were the participants, what culture, what context. And so th then it means, first of all, you know, we, we might be basing decisions off of uh, evidence that isn't actually applicable to our situation. And then I think it also then discredits um, all the other sort of scientific evidence or discredits this scientific approach because the people go, ah, oh, yeah, whatever. I, I, I saw two studies that contradicted themselves. That's why, therefore, you know, what's the point? I shouldn't even pay attention. And I think, um, and so I think it's so important uh, and bringing it back into a coaching lens, like, for example, one thing that I see a lot on the online is, the, you know, the this heavy push towards, you know, a constraint led approach and, and what they call representative learning design. And there's some really interesting stuff on there, but I see a lot of people pushing this for all sports coaches. And then they go, Oh, studies have shown this. And then you read the, the study and it was like 
specifically for soccer players or it was specifically for you know beginning athletes or or various there's various elements of it that make it that it might not be applicable to high performance tennis players and these people aren't necessarily pushing it for high performance tennis sure but i i think that we have to be so careful to paint things with such a broad brush um to suggest that this is this is what's best all the time uh, rather than to suggest you know can we start to have conversations where we say well i think this is best in this situation um because i think uh yeah i think a lot of conversations end up being so black and white when they could be more gray yeah i think that's fair i mean what i thought the the title was about is the first first day we met um i was wearing a, a a beautiful gray sweater and i thought it was like an homage to the first day that you met me yeah um can get it out but, of my mind right <laughs> now as much as i think your definition of it is spot on um for me or the, the only reason i, I suggested as well as um training the gray area or training the gray zone and coaching is or as i would say is such a massive component of the tennis canada coach two and coach three courses um where without training an area where the athlete decision making wise at least where the athlete is potentially unsure of what the right decision is. I mean, that's, that's real training, right? And if it's uh, mm-hmm. so in a lot of training, if it's not gray, it's like, well, are, are you really training anything? At least from a decision-making point of view. Yeah. Um, but I think that and if, piggybacks with um, your breakdown of how you feel about the, all the studies and everything else. Yeah. And I think like, if you really want to, if you want to, you know, be cute and take it a step further, I think it also applies to, you know, if we, if we extend the metaphor a little bit, there's, you know, there's the black and white zones where it's like the athlete has no chance of doing this. And then there's the other end of the spectrum, whereas the athlete uh, can do this really comfortably. And then there's the gray zone where they can sometimes do it, sometimes can't. And that's where so much of our attention should be focused as coaches, right? Is that zone where, uh, you know, <laughs> people who've read any of my blog posts will laugh because I, I reference this all the time, but uh, the zone of proximal development, like that in-between zone where they can do it if they get a little bit of help, um, you know, if we can get that right challenge point, um, then that's where players make their their biggest improvements. For sure. Which is actually a good point. So I, I, was, I was thinking this, um, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. I asked this to Christine Pichet as well, who's a who's an unbelievable coach from from Nuns Island. But my feeling sometimes with my players is like I can't. It's difficult for me to tell if my players, when they're improving, um, and and say there's a specific set of drills that we're working on for whatever length of time, it's tough sometimes as a coach to tell is a player getting better at the drill, or is a player getting better at having the skill when they when they're performing. And I guess like one way that you would look into that further is by like doing a lot of charting when they're actually performing or when they're actually competing. But I think it's, it's tricky because I think it's easy to, to some extent to improve performance and training. Mm. But again, are they getting better at the drill or are they owning the skill? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, I think it depends obviously how representative your drill is of a match situation. Right. And then I think also, having it you know having a setup where you can scale it or you can progress it um all the way to 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 gradually make things more and more realistic while still keeping a focus on that skill and then thereby ensuring at each step of the, at each step of the way that the what you're working on or that their development gets transferred to that next step the next step until then the gap between the drill and the match is relatively small right, right? because of course the most realistic drill is to play matches 
right? Sure. And then the least realistic is something, you know, like hand feed in the completely wrong context or whatever, you know, you can take it, you sure. can remove it all the way, shadow swing, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then there's, and then everything that we do is somewhere in the middle. And so hey, it's in the gray zone. Hey, look at that. Hey. And, so, and so everybody I drink. If, if you can, <laughs> I think if you can, um, that's just I mean, without, without hearing more context, but that that's my take on it is like, I think that you, yeah, you want to find what's the most realistic uh, drill I can create that still tackles the skill with enough repetition at the right challenge level. Right. Right. It can't be, too, it can't be too challenging first of all, because you could say, Oh, this is realistic. Okay. But it's too tough. And right. then it can't be realistic, but they don't get enough repetitions on it. Right. But if you get the, what's the, what's the drill I can create that has the most repetitions at the appropriate challenge point. And yeah. then once they start to master that, then, okay, can I make it more realistic, which maybe yeah. sacrifices some repetitions but then that's where your coach's eye comes in and you watch and say, you know, they play, they play a set and uh-huh. okay. Maybe they only hit seven volleys, but you go, yeah, six out of the seven were good. Whereas right. in the match I watched them play yesterday, they hit 16 volleys and only seven of them were good. And you go right. like, well, okay, I'm no genius, but I can do the math on that. So far yeah. it looks like it's getting better, right. you know? So, um, so yeah, that's, I mean, that's how I see it is, you know, can you progress things and, and keep an eye on it with your, with your coach's eye to say, okay, cause you don't need to do, I don't think you need to do super detailed charting um, every step of the way, but just keep a coach's eye to go. Yeah. We're cause you know, if you take them off the match court and they can do one out of four, generally speaking, then if they're doing three out of four in a couple of days, then you don't need a, you don't need a huge sample size to go. Hey, the yeah. last couple of times I've watched you play, you made three, uh, you know, you can see it's, you can see it's better. For sure. For sure. So how would um, you mentioned, I guess the, the difficulty of the training, right? And like finding finding that zone where it's like it's challenging enough, but it's still attainable for some uh for players. Yeah. Do you think um periodization or I guess the time in somebody's schedule, like if they're uh general prep or pre-comp or whatever phase of periodization they might be in, would that influence what you decide to do from a, a challenged level with your athletes? Um, yeah, I mean, definitely, but I think it's, I think of it more as like, what are the priorities at this time of the year or at this, you know, according to our, our scheduling, our periodization, like what's the priority because you're not going to push, you know, you're not going to challenge them as much right before a tournament, right? right? You're not going to push them out of their comfort zone, uh, you know, right before they're peaking. Um, but conversely in, you know, preseason, then then you're going to challenge them and, right. and, and you're going to, you're going to look to do more of that training. So I think it depends, you know, it depends on how much skill development you're doing as well, because yeah. there's a big difference there as well between like building a new skill, teaching a new skill and taking something that's already mastered and, and, and pushing the level there. Yeah. Um, so how much skill development you're doing and then also, you know, how close you are to a peak uh, where you right. want them to feel confident and to go through their strengths and to, um, yeah. And to be, to, to be sharp. Yeah. Cause it's, it's, and then to, to jump on that too, it's like, I think it's really important that athletes when the, when they're in a comp phase, like they really feel, they really feel confident. They really feel like they own everything they do. Um, which is the reason I ask, like if, if you and your training do that or not, but I know there's some coaches that like don't like, or some coaches MOs are just like, <laughs> let's make this hell on the athlete all the time. And hopefully they just figure it out. And mm. so it's like, I, I've never necessarily subscribed that, that way of thinking. 
No, but I, uh, no, I was I was just gonna say I do think though that I that's why I changed my my wording after the first go around because I, I switched it to peak because I think there's a big difference between like you know the players playing a tournament versus the players peaking now, right? right? Um, and that's I think it's so valuable. And I'm not the first person to say this by any stretch of the imagination, but like it's so valuable that you can keep on doing your work while players are playing tournaments, right? Yeah. Whether they're playing, whether it's work during the week or week and or work the days before and the days after, um, uh, you know, or work during the tournament. But like you can't abandon everything just because the kid's playing a tournament, right? Right. And right. so. I think, you know, you can peak a few times a year and that's when you, that's when you taper and you change your approach. But otherwise there's plenty of times when my athletes are competing and we're still in a training block. Yeah. You that's... can't sacrifice. Yeah. And, and that also scales too. If we want to go like that also scales too, um, according to the stage of development. Right. right. And I'm not, I'm once again, not saying anything new, but like, obviously the younger they are earlier, they are in the pathway then you know almost no tournament is going to be a priority right yeah maybe yeah. maybe you maybe you peak twice a year maybe okay maybe one more yeah. um but the rest of the time it's hey it's all about development and then of course as you get you know, to the other extreme on tour then it's a it's a different story when you're earning your living then the tournaments are much more important so i have a thought on that which i'll probably forget and won't get back to it but what's been interesting <laughs> is doing a couple of these podcasts is some some coaching buddies have just reached out to say like you know to to comment here or there and stuff and had an interesting conversation with Buddy. Al, we're according to the email I got, we're the number one tennis coaching podcast in Canada with with sixty with sixty downloads. According uh, according yeah. to Carlos from Podcast Something or Other, number uh, one Carlos. pod tennis coaching podcast in Canada. That's huge, Al. Uh, no, we're bad. famous. Okay, sorry, go on. Um, so I was chatting with a buddy Bogdan Gregorenko yesterday, who uh, worked at Tennis Canada for years, and he was he was. Um, he had a lot to do with uh, Bianca Andreescu's development and still quite close to her. Uh, he's got a podcast as well. So if you're interested in, in tennis stuff and sports stuff and just general fun stuff and check out Bogdan's podcast. But he had mentioned uh, that he had listened to the first couple of podcasts and he said it was like, hey, this is kind of interesting because like I'll listen to the stuff. And then sometimes it's like, well, my answer might be different. And um, he had sort of said that he kind of likes it for that reason, right? That it's like sometimes he can just listen and maybe not 100% agree. Um, you guys are wrong, like, but I still like listening. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, pretty much. No, but I thought that was interesting. I'm kidding, Bogdan. But the reason, uh, there was a reason why I was going to bring this up, and now it's not going to segue the way that I wanted to. But we were talking again about like the challenge of training and how much, um, how much you can really push a push an athlete to get better at something. Um, when it comes to private lesson related stuff. I think one of the reasons why it's so important that like a really good U12 is pretty much technically complete by the time they enter under 14s. One of the reasons I think that's important is because I don't know about you, but in most of the private lessons I do, a vast majority of the time is spent on just general maintenance of things. Like there's such, there's such long periods of time in say an hour long private lesson where we're just maintaining skills that the player still has. Um, and I, I think that's important as well because it's like training can't always be like pushing the player to the the depths of their limits. And so much mm. training, in my opinion, has to be some sort of feel good training where the athlete, even if they're in, if they're not in a comp comp competition phase, has to feel really good about what they're doing. Mm. Um, yeah, that's my general synopsis on that. I would, I mean, I definitely agree that maintenance is important, although I think. 
Yeah, uh, it's super important. I think as much as I think as much as possible, you should still be looking to improve and make adjustments. But but uh, for sure, there's there's you have to make sure that they're they're fresh in all areas. My question for you would be, um, you know, why is that being done in in a private context uh, as opposed to a situation where they're, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm not a huge fan of the sort of Canadian four to a court system. Um, but it, it, why why isn't that being done in a context when they're uh, four or three or uh, at least two to a court rather yeah. than you know and then and then use the private time for more individual work? Because um, from my end, at least, the private time is a little bit easier to get to maintain some technical um, fundamentals, right? Where it's, it's certainly oh, so. When you say maintain, you mean like cleaning things up a little bit? Yeah, more like that. Don't get me wrong; it can certainly be done in group training, but so much of our group training is. Okay, well, assuming all of our all of our athletes are on a LTAD based schedule where they're doing all the hours they should be doing, then a, a lot of our group training should be very, very open or very, very numbers numbers based and and competitive. Where we wouldn't like to talk too much about the technical stuff in the in the group training, which is why I tend to do a lot of that technical maintenance or cleaning up in in private lessons. But I also like I'm not saying that's correct. I'm just saying it. Just in my experience, that's been the best time to do it. Right. Yeah, I, I I think it's also, I mean, we could talk about it forever, but like what we talk about when we talk about fundamentals, mm-hmm. um, because that's also an area where my perspective has changed and it might change again. But in recent years, um, I tend to I tend to think that the only I I'm I wonder if the only things you should make sure are like quote unquote solid or whatever phrase you used was, um, you know, by the time they enter 14s are things that are going to be like impossible to change after that. And the fact of the matter is that like too big of a preparation isn't impossible to change. For sure. For sure. And so, you know, that's sort of been my shift in perspective over the last few years being in Europe and also just seeing lots of different coaches and lots of different pro players as well. And looking at, at their technical skills, um, you know, is thinking that like, you know, what is fundamental, right? Like what does every pro have? And, and uh, I think most people in, in, in Canadian tennis probably echo the same, the same, the same things that we, that we all took away from, from Louis and others, but like some combination of sort of timing rhythm and momentum slash balance, different people have different takes on that. Um, But none of that is like, uh, you know, preparation, hitting zone, uh, leg drive, like, like these things are important and they're good, but if they don't have it by 14 or 13, you're still going to be able to address it later. For sure. And, and so I, I'm starting to wonder if at a, at a pre, you know, at that under 13 age or stage of development, if the emphasis should be more on their ability to manipulate the ball, you know, their coordination skills, their general athletic skills, their ability to, to, to make the ball do what they want. Even if we can see, oh, you know what, eventually this might be a problem, right? As long as it's something that can be fixed eventually, then, Hey, let's address it when it becomes a problem. Right. Because I think that a lot of the, um, uh, well, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to speak, uh, speak, speak for anyone. But I think that in the past, I'll just speak for myself. I think in the past, sometimes I had been uh, too focused on 
making sure that everything was clean for the future. And then at the end of the day, that actually sacrificed their ability to make the ball do what they want, their athletic skills, their just general generic tennis skills. Yeah. Whereas I've seen so many good players develop now with uh, sort of, you know, average technique, but solid fundamentals, good timing, good rhythm, uh, you know, good balance. They make the ball do what they want. And then later on, when we see that something is posing a problem, they can't hit hard or they can't receive faster balls or whatever, then, okay, now let's make the technical changes. And those are able to to be changed because they, uh, yeah, because they weren't major uh, red flags. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting for sure. And I, th- I feel like you were reading my mind with your statement as well, because I, I would totally echo that I've, I've done the same in my coaching with the exact same as well, which I'm trying to trying to be better at. But it's tough because I think to some extent, like you want, there's a bit of like ego and a bit of personal pride that comes into coaching sometimes where like you want your kid to be in an event and you want other coaches to be like, wow, that kid looks good. But really at the end of the day, like what, at the end of the day, what people respect is winning. You know what I mean? So like that should, should trump everything else. Yeah. Um, but I know, but I know what you mean. I mean, that, that effect is very real. Um, yeah. And especially I think in a business sense, I think that can also affect uh you know how affect how people see your club and and what which people sign up and things like that so um, there's there's a definite uh a definite challenge there but yeah yeah, like you said at the end of the day it's a it's a long-term game and and winning long term is what matters yeah i had one other one other thing to you had mentioned uh something along the lines of like well we'll address this when when it becomes an issue and i think in my own coaching i've always thought things would become a bigger issue sooner but what I've come to learn, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, is like sometimes the thing that you think is an issue that could be exploitable by an opponent at some point, it just never really ends up happening. Mm. You know what I mean? Like it's like yeah. the athlete just finds a way to overcome for something or just opponents can't get into it in a certain way. Yeah, definitely. And and that, I mean, that goes back a little bit to our, uh, well, it goes back to what we were talking about with training. And then it also goes back to what we talked about last week or the week before on um, tempo and your ability to, to do certain things at different tempos. And so if you're, you know, you might have some wonky technique, but if you can execute the skill at a, a 1.2 second tempo and the plate people you're playing can only hit that 1.3 seconds, then it's not going to get broken down. Yep. Right. And if you, and if you train really hard and you're uh, coordinated enough, athletic enough that even with your wonky technique, you can improve that to one point uh, to 1.15 or whatever, then you're going to keep improving and, and beating better players um, yep. regardless of how wonky that technique is. Now, theoretically there is a ceiling, but you know, we don't know, we don't know where that is. And then yep. maybe when you hit that ceiling is when you address it, but right. not until then. Yep. Yep. Well said. Yeah. yeah. I also, if we're wrapped up on that, I also wanted to throw out this thing that I've been thinking about this. Um, you know, I had a discussion. I had a, I had, I was lucky enough to sit and chat with uh, Fred Fontang, Felix's coach um, last year. And uh, he had a lot of really interesting stuff to say, really smart guy. And one of the things I won't, uh, these aren't his words, but it's, it's the way I've, uh, interpreted it as this idea of the coach as a performance athlete, because he was, when he was talking to me, he was very big on this idea that he, you know, he essentially he treats himself as a performance athlete. And so he, 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 uh, you know, trains his own focus. He trains his own fitness, uh, almost like he has his own periodization. Like he's making sure that he's fresh 
Um, you know, it seemed, it seemed that he approached his job uh, as if he were an athlete and he had to perform every time that he was on court. And that also ties in with, uh, you know, I came across this term a few years ago um, and I don't, maybe everyone else has come across this before me, but this idea that uh, coaching like teaching and a couple other jobs is a performance profession, right? Which essentially means that it's not like uh, you know, a lawyer, if you're, if you're in the office anyway, not in court, but if you're in the office where you can sort of press pause, if you don't know the answer to something and go, okay, let me look this up. Okay. Okay. Now I'm going to come back and I'm going to finish writing my, my brief or whatever. Um, you know, there's a, there's a time constraint with coaching. You're, you're on court and you have to perform in that moment, right? You can't, if you're struggling to, to teach something or to come up with, you know, if you don't know what drill you want to do, you can't press pause and go, oh, let me think about it. I'm going to ask someone and then I'll come back to it. You've got to execute in the moment. Yeah. And I, I, I think all of this is, is, is really interesting. And I also think that so much of our discussion uh, or so much discussion amongst coaches is revolves around the theory mm. and, and I, I'm not sure that enough revolves around execution. I think that, so many of us, and I'm putting myself in this box as well. So many of us could become better coaches simply by doing what we currently do, but better right. rather than doing things differently or knowing more. Yeah. Right. And so I think like, and I don't think that gets talked about enough personally. I think like, well can we, can you go on court and be more dialed in, you know, choose the right moment to give feedback, choose the right uh, scoring system, choose the right drill, uh, choose the right, energy level the right uh thing to say whatever it is rather than thinking about okay well i saw this video about uh, alcaraz's drop shots and maybe i should be doing more of that i mean that's all well and good but i think there's the potential for so much uh improvement in our coaching just by doing what we're doing but better did you watch our training for four days this week <laughs> no why <laughs> we, we did a <laughs> we did a maintenance block on well we did we did some drop shot stuff for 10 minutes at the, at the start of the inning and we used alcaraz as something else <laughs> and i also sat down on court a lot more than i normally do because it's kind of sort of coming back from holiday but anyway all i'm going to say is i think all that's super interesting and that really hit me in the mind and a little bit in the heart because i think i think you're right and i think it's like when i hear a coach of your level say that it really makes me reflect on my own coaching being like, man, I'm a piece of shit, you know? <laughs> and I think like at some point too, it's like that stuff happens by holding each other accountable more where I'm so lucky in my mm -hmm. environment that like all the coaches we have, we really, we all give a shit. We all really care that players get better. And that's like, yeah. we all feed off that, but I've certainly been yeah. environments where it's, where it's been the opposite. Where like, for instance, like one coach in a club I used to, used to be at would, had timed out the amount of feeds he would have to hit to earn one dollar. And so he'd be there doing his lesson, he'd be like 17, 18, 19, five dollars. So he'd have this thing. So anyway, so yeah, the culture yeah, yeah. of the club, I think, really influences that. It's like it's really interesting. That Fred stuff is really interesting. Well, and I'll and I'll throw I'll throw something else at you too, which is tied into that, which is um, you know, coaching is a skill, right? Yeah. Name name any other skill um, that people try to get better at without practicing. Yeah, this is like one yeah. of the few skills in the world. I mean, I mean, maybe there's others, but it is a skill that basically everyone tries to get better at 
by learning more, but never practicing. Interesting. Right. How, like how often do we practice our coaching? Right. But this goes back to what I was saying. It, it's a performance profession. It's not just about what, you know, it's about what you can do in the moment. Right. And so you can know, and we know coaches like this, right. Who know plenty of things, but then their players don't get better. So you can know all you want, but if in the moment you can't visually see it, you can't realize in that moment, ah, this is what I have to say. This is what I have to do. If you can't execute in the moment, you're not going to make your players better. And so it's about your, it's about how you execute when you're on court. And then, you know, by extension, we should be able to practice that. Right. We should, and, 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 and so much of this, uh, so much of this thinking uh, as always isn't original. This comes from, uh, I spent some time uh, reading a few books around teacher training. Um, there's a really interesting guy, Doug Lamov. Um, if anyone wants to check him out, uh, teach like a champion and, um, I won't go into the whole detail, but basically, you know, they talk about it and they, they run a whole school network, um, that drastically overperforms basically. And one of the things that they do is they do teacher training where teachers practice with, uh, you know, fake students, uh, you know, their colleagues and they practice, oh, how would you set this up? How would you set this up? And this is what we do in the coach two and the coach three, right? So this idea isn't totally new. Um, but the question is about, you know, how much, time do we invest in that we do a little bit of that in the coach two and the coach three and then in your home environment you do none and let's be clear i i don't do any either there's no environment set up for that but i think it's it's something to it's something worth thinking about um which you know this this idea that if this is a skill it's not just to to know about it we should practice it yeah this is i'll mention again this is really hitting hitting me in the mind this is really interesting and it makes total sense. And it's not anything that I've, I've ever thought about before. Because um, any, yeah, anytime no, I've run... Of course, I've of course thought about like, what is it that I could do to be, be better, right? But to think of it as like, a, as the coach being the athlete, it's like, wow, that's... Uh, and, and if you can take that in and go, oh, this is what I need to do to be better, and then do it on the very next time you step on court, then fair play to you. Sure. I mean, that happens with athletes as well. You can yeah. say to someone off court and go, hey, I think you should, you know, do whatever technical thing. And then they can go practice it off court. on court. Of course, that can happen, right? right? But just like with our athletes, there's some things that are going to take repetitions and, and, and repetitions with feedback or repetitions with focus. And our coaching environment, I think, is A, too, uh, too high pressure. In other words, you don't want to do something that screws up the athlete. And also yeah. I think it's irresponsible to just mess around when you're dealing with, with, with people's careers and, you know, af- athletic careers and stuff. Right. Um, and so I think we owe it to them to invest the time off court, uh, to practice if there are things that we think we could be doing better. And I right. think it, it does depend on, you know, it does depend on the the type of coaching that you do and the athletes that you do. Like, I think, there's probably that stuff is probably more relevant uh, the more teaching you're doing. Like if you're doing uh, working with, with younger athletes um, whereas with older ones, maybe it's, it's less relevant. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's worth thinking about. Yeah. That's uh, I'll explain it again. I think, I think that's super interesting. And that's something I'm going to spend a lot of time thinking about over the next, next couple of days for sure. Yeah. Um, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, no, I mean, because Fred was really, and he didn't, like I said, he didn't um, put it in those words. And then that piece about practices uh, wasn't what he said, but he was talking just about his own, his own focus and his own fitness and his own energy levels. And I thought that was, um, 
super interesting. And so I, I, I think about that a lot these days is like, how am I, um, yeah. How am I training myself as, as an athlete, as a performance athlete? Right. And so, you know, how am I, and also too, you know, how many, here's another one for you. How many people take a directed approach to their development as a coach? Right. In other words, if you're doing, you know, your coach two, your coach three, then you're probably on some sort of pathway. You're following sort of the curriculum that they've laid out because you have to do your assignments. You have to attend the, the sessions or whatever. So at least in that context, you're working on something specific Yeah. outside of that context. And once again, I put myself in that boat because I, I finished my coach three and whatever it was 2018. And then it was only a year ago that I started up my master's. So there was a chunk in there where I wasn't doing any formalized professional development mm-hmm. and outside of that context, um, it's very easy to then get in the mode of like, oh, I read an interesting article. I saw an interesting uh, video. I had an interesting chat with my colleague, which is the equivalent of players going out and playing practice sets and, yeah. and saying, oh yeah, my forehand felt good today. I mean, that's, that's the equivalent, right? right? As opposed to saying, okay, what do I want to get better at? I want to get better at this, which is now something that I've started to do in the last, in the last, uh, you know, six months or so, but like, um, I want to get better at this. Okay. How am I going to do it? What is it that I want to get better at? Let's put it into specific things. What's the best resource to learn from this? What do I have to practice? How am I going to measure it? Like, just like we, you with we, training anything with training, any skill for a tennis athlete, it's like the exact same. Exactly. But we don't do that as coaches and I'm fully prepared to admit that like, I'm the nerdiest of all nerdy coaches. Like I, I think, you know, and fair play if people don't want to do that. But I think if we, if we want to discuss, what it means to be a high performance coach and like how to get the most out of your athletes and how to get the most out of yourself as a coach. Then I think that's, I think that's part of the discussion is if you want, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't coach any athlete and go like, yeah, I, I don't really have a plan. Uh, we're just going to, you know, I think it'd be fun to work on forehands today. And then uh, I don't know, tomorrow backhands. Like, but I think we do that as coaches to ourselves to go like, yeah, I'm, I saw this interesting thing. I'm going to try and do this a little bit though. I tried it yesterday. It worked well. And then the next day it's something else. Yeah. That's interesting. I think it's also, it's also very, well, two points to that is going back to the coach two and the coach three thing for every evaluation, any coach ever does. One of the key key components is does the coach improve, improve player performance. So Mm -hmm. in helping out with a little bit with the, with the curriculum, that's one thing that I've tried to do, be more aware of my own coaching is like, Hey, every hour I'm out here, every, every session I'm out here, did I improve the performance of every athlete here? And that's, that's simple. Right. And the other, oh, there's another one I was going to say too. Um, oh, I can't remember the second point now. You're Dang. on fire today. You're really... I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> that midday nap. Oh, boy. So um, sharp. Yeah. No, but anyway, just to reiterate again, I think that's really interesting. And I'm going to work really hard at that. Okay. I remember the other thing now. Here's some more editing for you, Zach. Um, what my right hand man, Jordan, and I, we talked yesterday, like actually yesterday about. Sometimes as coaches, I think uh, we can be critical of all the things we think we want to get stronger at, or we can be critical of the things that maybe our athletes overall lack a little bit. But it was, it was interesting where it's like, I asked Jordan, I was like, hey, well, if you had to like write me a list of all the things that you think you're like so proficient at, how mm-hmm. would that list look? And, he, and it was like, obviously, it's, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's an exercise for myself as well, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that, that's important as a coach too sometimes to be like, just like you would as a player. It's like, what are their strengths? Like, what are they really good at? And I think it's important as a coach to highlight, like, these are things I think I'm really competent at. Yep. But, but now it's like, what are the things that are potentially holding your athlete back? 
Yeah. Just sort of along the same lines of, of, of what you're saying here, but I mean, you said it much more eloquently. Um, but I really like that, Zach. That's, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's uh, just something that's been on my, uh, on my mind. Wow. So, yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. All right. That was the gray zone. See you.